Before we begin our main event, a brief reminder that Historically Thinking is now on Patreon. When you become a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room on Patreon, you not only support the podcast's weekly operations, from web hosting to scheduling to audio editing, you also enable us to do more in the future. Benefits that you'll receive as a Common Room member include a special weekly podcast, podcasts dropped in advance when possible, special events online and in the future live, input on topics, guests, and questions, competitions and prizes, and more. We will continue to produce our regular podcasts, which will still be available for free on Mondays in all your regular podcast feeds. We hope you'll enjoy being part of the Historically Thinking Common Room at Patreon. Just go to Patreon and search for Historically Thinking. Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast that's not only about the past and all its complexity, but also about how historians write history and how everyone can think about it. For more information about this or any episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can also sign up for our twice-a-month newsletter. Hello, this is the second and final part of my conversation with Olivier Zanz about his new biography of Alexis de Tocqueville, The Man Who Understood Democracy, published. This is May 2nd. It'll be published officially May 3rd by Princeton University Press. When last we left Tocqueville, he had just experienced a brilliant success with the publication of the first volume of Democracy in America. In this conversation, we will, as promised, discuss Tocqueville's formative trips to Britain and how they influenced his thought and writing of volume two of the Democracy, his political career, his experiences of the Revolution of 1848 and the Second Empire, his great work on the Ancien Regime and the French Revolution, and his death at a moment when it seemed that in both France and America, the experiment to which he had devoted his life was on the point of dramatic failure. Olivier Zanz is the James Madison Professor Emeritus of History at the University of Virginia. He's the author most recently of Philanthropy in America, a History, and a fruitful intellectual partnership with Arthur Goldhammer. He's edited Goldhammer's translations of the Library of America edition of Democracy in America, as well as Tocqueville's Recollections, and perhaps my favorite, the delightful Alexis de Tocqueville and Gustave de Beaumont in America, which is where I would start after people finish your biography. So let's, um, let's take up where we left off. One thing, um, Pamela Crossley, professor of history at, uh, at Dartmouth, when I tweeted out about the podcast this morning, she expressed her, I forget how she put it, but she expressed a kinship with de Tocqueville that he was hoping for a beautifully, perhaps a beautifully put together uh, edition of his first book, yet also hoping for its failure. But why did Tocqueville? What was this? What was his nervousness uh, as he approached the publication of the first volume of Democracy in America? Why was he so verklempt, as the French say? Tocqueville, I wouldn't say that he was shy, yeah, uh, but he had, uh, but he had no real experience of public life. Um, he was, um, uh, it had been a long road for him to become a supporter of democracy. He was the only one in his family uh, and in his group of friends, among, among his friends, who um, made the jump, so to speak. Uh, everybody else, uh, Father, mother, brothers, cousins, childhood friends, were, they were all legitimists, that is to say, 
in favor of the old Bourbon dynasty, um, wanted uh, the return of the Bourbon dynasty, were not supporting the constitutional monarchy of the junior branch of the family, the Orleans family, with Philip's. Uh, and um, basically, I think Tovial feared that everybody would reject his book about him. So when he said that maybe nobody really should read it, and he was kind of secretly hoping for this, this is, of course, said tongue-in-cheek. Um, actually, he was not granted his wish. Everybody read it. Many people thought it was brilliant. Uh, Roy Collard, who was one of the major, uh, one of the principals, um, political leader of the Restoration years, uh, 30, 35 years older than Tocqueville, uh, uh, compared it immediately to Aristotle and to Montesquieu. Uh, he just jumped uh, off the charts. Yeah, it, it, yeah and then it's, uh, you, you do, it's amazing the range of people of different political views who read it and were impressed by it. Yeah, including the socialists. Louis Blanc. Louis Blanc was a socialist, of course. He was a major figure. Uh, later on in 1848, created uh, national workshops and, and investigation for improving uh, work lives of workers. Uh, Proudhon, of course, a major socialist thinker, never published anything on democracy in America, but left extensive manuscript notes mm -hmm. on, on the book. And uh, uh, because they all understood Wistogville that society was changing and there was somebody who believed, somebody on the other side was believe, who, who believed that, yes, society needed to change. Mm -hmm. So where is, and this is going to be very, as we discussed the Tocqueville's political career, we should probably... Um, Describe, describe where he falls because he is you just describe you've just said how he is he's obviously not a socialist but he's also not a legitimist he's a sort of a stranger he's estranged from his own family and his political views so where will he fall in the great sort of arena of left to right in in well, French political life uh, so this is something that I have uh, always great difficulty to explain. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, because Tocqueville was conflicted, even probably more conflicted than he realized. <laughs> uh, That's pretty conflicted. <laughs> which is pretty conflicted. Uh, because, yes, he was against both the monarchist and the socialist. Although in the 1840s, he began to warm up to the socialists quite a bit. And it's only the violence of 1848 that really changed his mind and said, well, you cannot... Because it's, it's, he was against the old Jacobin problems of basically from the center acquiring, acquiring uh, from the left, I mean, uh, or from the right, acquiring uh, power. And once in power... Uh, using power in the name of the people rather than um, mm -hmm. uh, rather than seeking representation 
and debate. Mm -hmm. So there was this sort of Jacobin tradition of, of monopolizing power as opposed to sharing it. Mm -hmm. And Tocqueville wanted uh, debates and sharing. Now, Tocqueville felt, somewhat naively I should say, but he felt it for a long time, that he wanted to be independent. Uh, that he could make his mind on a case-by-case -case basis as to what should happen. He didn't want to be tied to the political right or to the political left. Part of it is that on the right there was a fair amount of electoral corruption, so it would have nothing to do with it. Joining all these coalitions uh, to maintain power, he he was he was a man of principles. Mm -hmm. Now, when we say that Tocqueville was a man of the center, and this is where I have trouble explaining it all the time, is that because it's it's a difficult thing to actually grasp, uh, but something I feel deeply about. The center is not a comfortable place where you find where you make compromises between extreme. The center, in Tocqueville's views, is a place where you actually transcend op opposites and find solutions that, that, that um, do not depend on, on a pre-existing set of, 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 princi of unchanging principles. Uh, it's, it's a dynamic uh, that may include opposing elements, but it's, there's something radical in Tocqueville's search of the center. He is a radical centrist. He is a radical centrist, but a radical centrist is a very ambiguous term. To explain. <laughs> and and, and uh, but there's something radical in his search for solutions. Mm -hmm. um, uh, one thing I said, I think, in the first interview, and I want to say it again, is that Tocqueville um, overcame his fears of uh, uh, excessive equality and leveling, equality as leveling, overcame these fears that equality would be a form of leveling. He overcame this to realize that equality is properly applied, so to speak, would be a source of liberty for the greater numbers. Mm -hmm. Provided, though, that there would still be some um, uh, intermediate bodies uh, to uh, maintain a sense of balance, you know, uh, uh, some safeguards, mm -hmm. uh, so that liberty doesn't turn into anarchy. So this is the, we'll get, I guess we'll talk, this is the, to prevent the tyranny of the majority. To prevent the tyranny of the majority. Now, uh, interestingly enough, Tocqueville dropped the term the tyranny of the majority from volume two altogether. Mm -hmm. Now, there was, I think, uh, some, I mean, Tocqueville was an ambitious man and, and, and all of his, practically all of his American friends, all of his informants, from, from the Whigs, Porter Whigs, to the Jacksonians, uh, you know, from Edward Everett, uh, a leader of the Whig Party, to 
draw point set. Uh, to draw a point set or, or Benton mm-hmm. or some of the other Jacksons. Reactive against this idea of the tyranny of the majority. Yeah. Moreover, uh, the Brits, I mean, uh, 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 dwelled on it just to show that, that, you know, their institutions were mm-hmm. so much stronger. Mm-hmm. And, and it, so the Americans were quite upset about this. And, and he decided it was really not essential. He maintained the idea, but he dropped the, yeah. he, he, he dropped the concept uh, altogether. He also sees things in both Britain and, and in England and Ireland that uh, then focused on things that he must have seen in America but didn't comment on in Volume 1. Okay. Like, so, like poverty and industrialization. Yeah. You took the words out of my mouth. <laughs> because... Uh, so on the one side of it, he so saw in England uh, a still powerful aristocracy yeah. that, that no longer existed in France and, and a country of great landowners. Uh, but he also saw industrial poverty uh, to, and that to him was a surprise. Um, he had not experienced uh, poverty in America. Not that it didn't exist, but certainly didn't exist at that level. And he had not experienced industrialization, industrialization uh, in America. He had not visited the textile mills in Lowell when he was uh, near Boston. He had based most of his observations on rural America, on well, East, East Coast, cities and, and the frontier, uh, but not really gotten into the economic transformation of America. Uh, it's one of the points that he, he, he missed. It's amazing, actually, how much he missed in America and how wide he was about, about America. <laughs> there, there, there is a, 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 a mystery here. We can get into it if you want yeah, to. Well, we should just talk about it now because you, uh, in our first conversation, we kept saying about the things that he missed that he could have seen. Right. And uh, probably but, irritated, and, and, and this is very good because there's too much of Tocqueville the prophet, Tocqueville the, but, the all-seeing. But before we talk yeah, about this, yeah. before we talk about this, let me just finish quickly my yeah. train of thought on industrialization. The shock was industrial England, was Manchester. Yeah. Was, 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 and this is where uh, he, he felt very, very strongly seeing the, the huge inequality in industrial England and the, and the exploitation of workers that a new industrial aristocracy could possibly emerge and destroy democracy. And, and so the whole theory of the coming of an industrial democracy was not a prediction of what the Gilded Age might be. Might be. He had no clue about that. It was a description of England. Mm-hmm. And that is a lot of Tocqueville is like this. That is mm-hmm. to say, it's based on comparative judgment, mm-hmm. but it's all subsumed to the topic of democracy in America. It also see, and I was very struck by your remarks on his journeys in Ireland. He sees rural poverty in a way that he he could have seen rural poverty in parts of the South, but even then, he didn't wouldn't necessarily have seen people living with the pigs. That he said he says in a very witty letter that you quote that he he and Beaumont learned to go to seek shelter from the rain in a house with pigs in it. 
Yeah, because they were relatively wealthy compared to the real poor. Yeah. Uh, because they, they had a pig. Uh, yeah. uh, the, the, he also, in, in, in Ireland, not only so extreme rural poverty, but he realized what a bad aristocracy was. Yes. He says this is the example of what aristocracy without any, and now I, I got the note, without any sort of benef- beneficent fact. This is aristocracy at its absolute worst, yeah, that's is right. what you see in Ireland. That's right, that's right, yeah. that's right. Now, on the mystery, yeah. on the mystery of how you could have so many, uh, how you can say so many things right, Mm-hmm. after, in a sense, missing so much as a, uh, in, 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 in traveling through America. You know, he talked with brilliance about associations without really ever observing one of them in detail. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in, in a way that some is re- still uncannily. Yeah, uh, some, some remarks on, mm-hmm. on the temperance movement, and some of the political convention. And, that, and, and, and I have to say, when I first read him, his description of a town meeting, which I realized, he, having grown up in a village with a town meeting, uh, he never went to one, <laughs> I don't think. No, no, he never went to one. But he described the way that town meetings worked in my village in southern New Jersey. Yeah, yeah, no. But, okay, he, he relied a great deal on comparisons between countries, France, yeah. England... And, and, and the U.S., later on Germany, not quite yet. Um, and, and that helps him a great deal in order to, to reach solid judgments on democratic processes uh, through these comparisons. But I think, by and large, a lot of Tocqueville's work is is about creating a theory of democracy and is the outcome of sheer intelligence rather than observation. <laughs> um, and actually, I know of two critics, two 19th century critics who said this and wrote it in so many words. One is the man I've already mentioned, Royer Collard, mm-hmm. who said, to a great extent, this is invention, and invention is, to a great extent, arbitrary. How did he know that? Had he, had he traveled in America? No, but he realized it. He was very bright himself. He was a, yeah. And the second person who said it in so many words is John Stuart Mill. Yeah, so here we go. Yeah. So, he... What is then, you say, you talk about page 185, you talk about the grand theory of volume two. Um, and you, this is when he finally, when he finally gets volume two together, and we won't get into the difficulties he had in, in writing it, which are somewhat obscure. Um, what is the grand theory? Okay, so the grand theory is actually fairly simple to, to describe. In a perfect world, and of course the people see it much better than me, but in a perfect world, equality and liberty are one and the same. Mm-hmm. They're one and the same 
because if you're perfectly equal, then you're totally free. And if you're totally free, mm -hmm. then you're perfectly equal with everybody else. So that's kind of an ideal world. But in, in, in reality, in reality, people want equality so much that they are willing to sacrifice their political liberty for it, mm -hmm. provided that some kind of powerful government or even dictator maintains the equality, then they're willing to give up their liberty. Uh, and therefore, one needs to do everything we possibly can to keep liberty alive, which is the liberty to achieve your own potential, to join with others, to make decisions, to self-govern. And in order to do that, one has to acquire the habit of liberty. <laughs> Because it's not something that you can create, it's something that you have to, to practice and over a long period of time. And this is where America is so significant. It's a spiritual it, discipline of liberty. Because it's a spiritual and, and, and in Douglas' framework, Americans were more successful at it than anybody else is so. Precisely because, because in, in the historical sequence of the United States, the country began at the local level. And, and actually, Jared Sparks explained that to Tocqueville quite well. Became at the, began at the local level. So the, 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 the town uh, preceded the, the, uh, the colony. The colony preceded the state. The state preceded the, the union. Even in the most aristocratic colony, Virginia, yeah, well, the Assembly of 1619, is for like a very small, it's basically a town, an area the size of a town. It, absolutely. Yeah. So, so, and this historical se sequence somehow survived. It was not, you know, it, re it remained the, 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 the tradition of decentralization. So, so this is the grand theory, is mm -hmm. in order to maintain liberty, one has to acquire the habit of it. And, and the habit of it is a lot of work. Now, this is why it says, you know, democracy is a very demanding form of government. Because everybody has to get involved. And this is a hard saying. This is a hard teaching. Which yeah, this is a hard teaching. This is a very hard teaching. It's very hard teaching. But, but that's why Tokyo stands right in the middle. Yeah. But this is also why this middle has nothing like a compromise. <laughs> Okay. And this is perhaps some of the reason why then volume two is not greeted with the same. This is not particularly what people thought they were getting. Well, let me put it this way. Um, volume one was read last, it was very successful. But it was not necessarily successful for the uh, for what Tocqueville wanted people to read. It was really successful, uh, especially in French political circles, almost as a textbook on American institutions, mm -hmm. because people were interested in 
knowing what was going on there. And, and so the, the, the message that uh, I wanted to convey was somewhat subdued in Volume 1. And it was more initially read as, as you know, really interesting informative piece on America, everybody needed to read to mm -hmm. understand it, rather than the general political it's theory. Interesting how people still sometimes insist on reading it that way. Well, it, it is, uh, um, you know, there's, there's a large debate in among Tocqueville scholars, I don't get into it in the biography because it's not that kind of a book to, about it, but whether volume one and volume two are one or two books. And uh, that's whether it's the same book, I mean, it's two books, obviously, physically, but whether it's, it's the same book or two completely different projects. And, uh, uh, and I, I think a lot of people really tend to think those are two different projects uh, because volume one is so close, so many ways, to the, to the travel notes. Mm -hmm. I actually think that they are a, the same uh, book. And the reason why I say this is because Tocqueville decided that he would not write an introduction to Volume 2 because he had already written one to Volume 1. <laughs> and, <laughs> and there was no need to change it. And in Volume 1, he describes equality as a providential fact and so on and so forth. So, which you know, he wouldn't do that if he didn't believe that equality has the potential to, 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 to generate the kind of liberty he wanted to see. Mm -hmm. So even before Volume 2 is published, he's gotten married and gotten involved in politics. Right. So and naturally, almost naturally, he married an English woman. Well, it was, it was not so natural. Not so natural, but it was, it was interesting so, that it worked out that way. It, it was not so natural. This Englishwoman happened to live next door to him in Versailles when he was in the courthouse, working in the courthouse there as a young man. He had met her before going to America. She was a little older than him. Uh, he, he was, uh, it, it was, it was, she was a middle class, she came from a middle class background in England. The family strenuously resisted it. But his family or her family? His family. His family, yeah. Strenuously resisted it. They shouldn't have been so surprised because they had read the manuscript of democracy in America where he praised uh, uh, the fact that in America people chose their, mm -hmm. their, their spouses and, and, uh, <laughs> and, and so on and so forth. So he did and he, he stood firm. Um, and, uh, and that was very... Uh, uh, significant, um, but he, all along he wanted to be a politician. Yes. He couldn't run for election before age thirty, because that was the law. He, he that was six months after the publication of Democracy in America in eighteen thirty five. But but the first opportunity was eighteen thirty seven when there were elections called. He ran and failed. Mm -hmm. uh, it was his first campaign. And he campaigned successfully in 1839. And he joined the chamber in 1839 
then after two attempts, uh, and volume two unfinished, and he said, I have to finish this book. <laughs> Either I will kill it or it will kill me. And I Everyone recognizes that. Everyone <laughs> recognizes that feeling. Yeah. He struggled with finishing books. Yeah. And he did, and published it pretty much as soon as he was in the chamber. But yes, it was a much more abstract volume. And again, in the correspondence with John Stuart Mill, Tocqueville recognized, well, you know, only a few people like you and me are accustomed to uh, thinking so abstractly. Mm. So I'm not so surprised it's had such a big success. But he was convinced it was an important book. And enough people recognized it as such that actually he was elected to the French Academy. And, and, but it was not nearly a... a, a a successful book until much later when it became to be perceived as a precursor to social science analysis. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Very briefly, he's, you discussed some of his, his, this is sort of his program of, of radical centrism is very curious to us. And unless we understand some of the, his, what we've discussed already, it, uh, uh, someone who's interested equally in the abolition of slavery, Algerian colonialism, and and then colonization, and also nationalism. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But it makes sense to Tocqueville. Well, okay. It was the age of empires, to borrow from Habsburg's famous title. It was the age of empires. So, so he was... Um, he had no qualms about that. Yeah. And I would say very few people had. Uh, for the British, they, it was a civilizing mission, at least in John Stuart Mill's head, mm -hmm. not for everybody, of course. Uh, you know, it was the age of great empires, uh, Habsburgs, uh, the Spanish Empire, the British Empire, the French Empire, the, the Ottoman Empire, of course. Uh, and, and Tocqueville was a nationalist. Um, he, it had been deeply ingrained in him in his childhood that, you know, God and country, God and country, God and country, the old nobility, God and country. And, and I think uh, if it hadn't been for his uh, fragile physical constitution, he probably would have gone to the army, like his brothers, mm -hmm. and like his childhood friend, Kel mm -hmm. uh, But of course, he had great intellectual ability, and, and he went another way uh, after much soul-searching. Um, so he was a great nationalist, and he killed a great deal for the place of France in the world, the competition with England. Uh, in the Middle East, uh, the possibility of, of uh, France expanding where the Ottoman, Ottomans had failed, and so on and so forth. Uh, now, uh, two things here. Uh, maybe three. 
One, he, he, he felt very strongly, or at least convinced himself, rightly or wrongly, that um, the colonization of Algeria would be, in the end, fairly benign, because the country was very poorly settled, loosely settled, loosely settled. There's plenty of open space. And Arabs were selling land very cheaply and easily. There wouldn't be an issue. It just turned out that way. Uh, it turned out to be a brutal conquest uh, where Abdel Kader and other leaders really fought tooth and nail, um, um, Ukrainian style, mm -hmm. <laughs> I would say, to preserve the country. Uh, but Tocqueville went to stay with this logic, and even though he never said it publicly, he privately he supported the. Uh, uh, you know, scorch earth policy of using all means necessary to win. Once, once the French army was there, there were no, no options other than winning. Mm -hmm. Although he was quick, not to his defense, but he, even though he supported it, I think he was also very quick as soon as possible to support the the, the idea that the army needed then to turn over the colony to civilians mm -hmm. and settlers and get out. Mm -hmm. Just basically maintain, as he, as he put it, just make sure that, that settlers could farm without the gun. Mm -hmm. but, but, but that was the extent of it. Uh, but, but he supported the brutal conquest, um, including some, if his best friends were involved in it, Gargolet was uh, in the in the army. His brothers didn't go, but were was about to go, so on and so forth. So there was that. But the other reason I feel, I feel, or I know, is that Tocqueville believed that the French needed a great project to get out of sort of middle-class mediocrity, mm. that people don't have any real opportunities in France and no ambition, could go sell on the land over there and have lots of children and create farms, and that um, the tail had enough rain to, to be fully cultivated, had happened in the antiquity for the Romans, it would be the turn of the French. And also, there would be a prosperous colony keep England in check mm -hmm. in controlling the Mediterranean. Uh, so, so there was this great nationalistic impulse and at the same time this notion that, that Algeria could be an American West. Yeah. And that is said in so many words. He went to Algiers to look at it and said, hey, this is Cincinnati. <laughs> uh, nobody has any time to rest or write or think. It's just busy, mm -hmm. you know, uh, uh, getting on with life, getting on with life, and making yeah. a buck, and, yeah. and the rest of it. Which is interesting because, of course, 
I don't think people realize, but I've heard people say the opposite, which is not true, that he's extremely sensitive, it seems to me, about the plight of the Indian in, in, in the first volume of democracy. Um, and, and I think very um, bracingly savage about the way that Americans occupy the destruction of the entire, uh, all, of, all of natives uh, by, through legalism. Um, yeah, he, he, he's all of that. But he had to warm up to the fate of Native Americans. At first, he didn't feel too. Um, he, he he did feel that there was this that Native Americans were missing an opportunity mm -hmm. uh, to participate in the larger transformation. Mm -hmm. But in the end. He felt very strongly that uh, um, Indian removal was 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 a, a form of genocide mm -hmm. that he could not possibly support, especially as it, it was done through through treaties that were not respected and and f uh, kind of a, a, a way to destroy. Um, uh, a population with legal pretense mm -hmm. uh, of doing the right thing. So, so, so that was. Uh, but, but somehow, you're right to say that he did not uh, apply the same the same principles to the French population moving to Algeria. But he's very consistent in his abolitionism. Uh, and, uh, yeah, and yet amazingly unsuccessful. He's very successful, very consistent in his, in his abolition. He's uh, unsuccessful because he uh, was not the only one. No. Uh, but but there was a but but the the French planters in the Caribbean were a very powerful force, and it took uh, well uh, the. Convention during the French Revolution that abolished slavery, but Napoleon had restored it uh, in the colonies, and it took the 1848 revolution to do it again. Uh, but the work of the abolitionists in the 1840s, those among them, was very significant yes. to push this forward. So there is a major contradiction there. There are plenty of contradictions in Tokyo. There's plenty of contradiction, and and the difficult part of it is that. Tocqueville has always tried to assume his contradictions, okay, and of course that couldn't be done. Um, and this is this is the case now. His commitment to abolition has fared well. His commitment to colonization has not fared well, um, even though it was a majority opinion at the time. Um, uh, but he remained very critical of the army all along. Mm -hmm. Yes, he does not trust generals. And, and in the end, I think, in the end, uh, especially at the time of the Sepoy Rebellion in India, uh, he realized he had been wrong about Algeria mm -hmm. and said as much, yeah. and said as much. So at least you have to, to recognize the fact that he was capable of saying I was wrong. And of course, we, this brings us to sort of the, where we should go next. The, by the time of the Sepoy Rebellion and the revolution in India, 
um, things have changed greatly in France. And in 1848, at the Great Revolution, um, what's Tocqueville's part in it? Um, he left an ex uh, I just started reading relatively recently, thanks to your book, his, uh, his memoirs, uh, his souvenir. I hope you took your Lammers translation. <laughs> yes. And it's, uh, they're so good. Yeah. I mean, there's, they're, 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 they're a source that's almost too good because it's so much his opinion. I don't know what to, to think. And I, I, you learn so much, but now I know all these now obscure French politicians and generals and actors. It's an amazing book. It's an amazing book. It's an amazing book. And, and in the edition that Arthur and I did of the Recollections for 1848, I put in, in the back of dictionary, a biographical yeah, dictionary. Yeah, thank God. Of everybody yeah. involved. Yeah. And uh, because otherwise people it's, wouldn't it, know what they, they yeah. did. But the, the um, uh, okay, so, so very quickly, yeah. not at first, but very quickly, Tocqueville joins the Republic. He said, okay, after all, this is going to be an opportunity for me to see through some of those reforms that I wanted to see. And, and after resisting the idea of the universal, of universal suffrage, he really gets into it, mm -hmm. and he's elected. There's that lovely scene where he leads the people of the manor to the, to the yeah, ballot box. That's right, and it's a classical scene. I mean, I think, I think uh, if you study French history in France and you have a class on, 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 on the Revolution of 1848, everybody will have a you know, quote from this so, passage. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's really a famous passage. Uh, as he instructs people to vote and to do their job and all that. And takes his place back with the T's, yeah, I think. Right, back with the T's, <laughs> because yeah, all of this is really remarkable. Uh, he, so, so he, he supports it, but at this, until June, yeah. when, you see, the giant in the room here, or the elephant in the room, rather, he, he is Karl Marx, because both Marx and Tocqueville interpret 1848 the same way. That is, it's a class war, mm -hmm. and they both so see it in class terms. It's amazing the 1848. If you read to, if you read back to back, yeah, uh, Tocqueville's recollection of 1848, and 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 Marx's books on class struggles in France, you you they, they are complementary books. In an amazing way, it would have been a non-starter. A dinner party with the two of them would not have been an enjoyable occasion. But they, well, well, <laughs> but it would have course, been. Tocqueville. I mean, Marx read Tocqueville. Uh, Tocqueville never read Marx. Yeah. But Marx read Tocqueville. He's made not of it. But 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 Tocqueville never read Marx for sure. Didn't. But they could have overlapped. Yeah. In the reading room of the British Museum. Yeah, because, because they were there at the same time. Yeah. If they registered for reading in the British Museum at the same time, not, maybe not the same day, but in the same time period. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and so it's conceivable they could have met, but they didn't. Um, now, well, there, well, there's that moment I just just to, to describe that with that moment in June where he has dinner with of all people. I mean, this is this is how wonderful the these the, these recollections are because he has dinner sitting next to Georges Sand. Right. Uh, and they have a delightful time, but she warns him of what's what's coming. What's coming? And said, if they and you know, and I said, just fear for your life. Uh, and so, because 
if my people go in the street, you will all die. It didn't happen that way, but it got close. Mm -hmm. uh, it got close. It was an incredible rebellion. Now, Tocqueville was there, clearly on the side of order. Um, and so, you know, Tocqueville, if you have two moments in the 1848 revolution, you have February and June. Mm -hmm. So February born in the Republic, I mean, Marxist is very well. He said, you know, uh, uh, February was about the change of regime, June was about the change of society. Mm -hmm. So, so Tocqueville was for February and against June, and Marx was for June, <laughs> and, and neither got his wish. Yeah, yeah, okay? yeah. So, so uh, uh, that, that's, uh, uh, that, that's what it is. But, but it was at the time, though, where Tocqueville was on the uh, committee to write a new constitution, the Constitutional Committee of the Second Republic, and he played a major role, even though he failed, he tried very hard to implement American-style bicameralism and failed to do that. Yeah. Um, but it was, a, it was sort of a dream come true that he finally had the chance to... To do, but, but he had little influence in the end, too, too yeah. but it was, it was a big part of it. Yeah. And uh, he had not... He, okay, and the second thing, of course, he had a stint as Minister of Foreign Affairs. Yes. And this was a painful moment in his life because, uh, uh, well, the, the Roman revolutionaries in 1848 had conquered Rome and the Pope had, fleed, had fled Rome. And, 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 and before Tocqueville was Minister of Foreign Affairs, the French had decided that the French army would restore the Pope in Rome. And had defeated the revolutionaries. So, so uh, when Tocqueville became Minister of Foreign Affairs, the French army was already there, and the revolutionaries had already lost. Actually, Mazzini thought that, that Tocqueville was a traitor to the mm -hmm. cause of democracy. Uh, and I could see why... You would think that, yeah. I could see why he thought that. Now... But he's, he's, he's foreign minister for four months? Five months. Five four or five. Four or five. five. Not long. But he's... Goal was to get the Pope to implement liberal reforms. Uh, okay, we give you back your temporal power, you restore, but you have to implement liberal reforms. The Pope never did. Mm -hmm. So Tocqueville always felt that was a real failure uh, on his part. And he was he he was destroyed by that, very much destroyed by that. Um, uh, and uh, and in the end, he started reflecting on this great political theory that we discussed earlier. And he mm -hmm. said, "Well, I don't believe in this stuff anymore. You know, I've been, I've lived through two revolutions: 1830, 1848. I've been in politics. I've been in the chamber all these years in between. Uh, and 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 then, you know, he's going to live through the coup. He said, you know, these theories don't amount to anything. They don't explain anything." So he got to this period where he actually writes this in his recollections of 1848, you know. He can't believe in social theory anymore, in political theory. It makes no sense. But then in the end he recovers his ideas and that, yes, I thought it's not so bad. And he said, come on, reflect mythically, you know, I mean, was, to his colleagues in the French Academy, well, you know, after all, even the great Montesquieu would have been a mediocre minister, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so... so 
he goes into and then with the coup, as you mentioned, Napoleon, Louis uh, become makes himself emperor. Yeah. And first, he, yeah, first he makes himself uh, the sole, the sole dictator, and, dictator then, and, then, and then emperor. Yeah, emperor. And Tumphill is he sort of in self-imposed exile. I mean, he's he's he just withdraws from. He doesn't want. He. I mean, it obviously, it makes him perpetually sick in the stomach to to look at this. This nonsense. Yeah, he's in self-exile. Yeah. Uh, many others are in real exile. In real exile. He never... Yeah. Been, because they were kicked out. He's not. Uh, actually, Louis Napoleon, who then becomes Napoleon III, always retains a certain level of... Uh, it's hard for me to even say... I don't think affection is the right word, but, <laughs> but of respect of Tocqueville even after the coup, seeks his advice now and then, even tries to get him back. <laughs> but of course, we would not would not consider it for one moment. And um, so, so the uh, but I, yes, I, I, I it, one one continuing thread of his rest of his life is he never liked the first Napoleon, uh, and he hated he hated the first Napoleon, and, and there's no way in hell that he's going to like the second one. No, and this is why. He, he he wanted to he wanted to write a book on the coming of the first Napoleon and to see how the first Napoleon actually had opened the 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 possibility the historical possibility of the second one. And uh, then he makes a wonderful and and this is a section which I think only a historian can write. He makes the sort of the moment when he discovers the archives. In uh, thanks to a young well, okay. uh, archivist, could you set that up because it's a beautiful moment. It's, you can, you, I can feel his excitement as okay. he. Okay, so, 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 so here it is. At first, he wants to write this book on the coming of Napoleon to explain to explain why the revolution that was fought in the name of liberty ended up in despotism, mm -hmm. which was which is the historical sequence. Which is the historical sequence he sees the second time between 1848 and the second Napoleon. So his goal is to write a book to explain that sequence. The first Napoleon, the second Napoleon. The revolution, the French Revolution goes into the First Empire. The 1848 Revolution ends up in the Second Empire. And he starts working on this. But pretty quickly, as he starts working on it, you know, like often happens in history, when you're a historian, you, you, you say, well, I need to know what happened before, and I need to know what happened before. And soon he finds himself working into the archives of the French Revolution. And then he tries to dig up uh, data on how much, of the, uh, how much financial gain the peasantry had. That is to say, did they really become small landowners during the French Revolution? And is that the reason why they elect the dictator take over to make sure they keep their land and all, or whatever? Uh, and and so he keeps working on the on the. He keeps following the threads. He keeps following the thread, and the thread takes him further back and further <laughs> back. So he puts the the book on Napoleon on the back burner, with the idea of returning to it later. He would die before having yeah. the possibility of doing that, but. Okay. At the same time, Tocqueville, having poor health, uh, has 
is feeling sick and, and the climate in Normandy is too humid uh, as he has respiratory problems. He will die of tuberculosis. He has respiratory problems. And so his doctors advise him to move to a mild climate. And they rent a house along the Loire Valley. The Loire Valley is, is where the kings had their castles in the 16th century. For that reason, it's a, mild, it's a very mild climate. And it's, it's just perfect for, for the sort of... Uh, you know, it's a little bit like people who suffer from excessive arthritis to live in Arizona. Yeah. <laughs> so that they don't have any humidity. Uh, <laughs> it was uh, decided, it was in France, that represented the perfect balance of, of, of climate. And that's, that's my kind of prescription. Uh, it's the uh, perfect prescription. Mm. So, so he goes there, and he keeps reading theories of the French Revolution. He reads the physiocrats. Uh, he reads about uh, uh, the you know, 18th century economists. Um, he, he, he compiles all sorts of, of notes on various readings. And, and one day by chance, <laughs> he, he was living outside the city of Tours uh, in a little village. And, and a couple of miles away from the city, he crosses the Loire River, goes into the city, goes into the municipal archives. There was a young, enterprising archivist who knew him uh, by reputation, admired democracy in America, knew this was a a former minister, a member of the French Academy, uh, you know, a real uh, uh, big name coming into his little Mm -hmm. provincial archive. And he says, you know, I've just classified the governmental archives of the uh, 18th century, uh, 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 the, uh, uh, the representatives of the, of, of the king, the intendants, they were called, uh, representing, representing central authority in the region, and they are just, uh, I've just classified them, and it's a very large file of, document, of documents. But if you really want to understand um, how the central government governed the provinces in the 18th century, this is what you need to look at. This is the revelation. And this is the revelation. Everything changed. <laughs> so Tocqueville is one of the first ones <laughs> outside the archivist who really read these documents. And all of a sudden he sees, he realizes the extent to which central authority governs villages more and more, that the kind of local autonomy that, that he had described in the New England town uh, was impossible to conceive mm-hmm. in Ancien Regime France. Now, I think he forced, I think he forced the, 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 the picture. I think, I think there was still a great deal of autonomy, and I think historians have concluded that. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, he's describing a real trend. Mm-hmm. Um, that, 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 that trend actually makes perfect sense in view of his previous understanding of the, of the different fates of the French nobility and the British nobility. The British mm-hmm. nobility kept its, its 
local influence and local power, the king let them have it, and uh, and actually the British nobility managed to to retain a significant uh, uh, a, a what's the word I'm looking for autonomy functional okay. functional relationship with the local population. Mm-hmm. Well, the the kings slowly but certainly removed all of this autonomy from the French nobles and replaced them by civil servants who carried out central orders into the community. Now, concretely, what does that mean? That means if you need a building permit, you know, to build a church or a school, you know, the local uh, authorities have to require permission from the central government. (laughs) It still is the case, but it started then. Or, you know, into every detail of local administration needs to to go back to a central administration. And this and this happens far long before the revolution. Uh, and it began in the seventeenth century. Yeah. And Tocqueville understand it. And I ended up saying in his book on the Ancien but France was governed by thirty people, the thirty intendants. Now again I think he forces the point. Mm-hmm. Uh, because so what he says basically is that this centralization which I always thought was a product of na- the Napoleonic years. Mm-hmm. You know, first, you know, the Jacobins during the French Revolution, and then Napoleon builds on it to make it the rule of the state, in effect, was a, a much earlier creation. Mm-hmm. And, and so that is uh, one of the uh, great contributions of Tocqueville on the of the old regime, that is to say, that uh, the much of modern France, post-revolutionary and Napoleonic France, existed under the monarchy, and that the revolution didn't tra- so much transform France as it revealed it to itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's one of the great points of the. And so this becomes the first volume. This well. This becomes part of the first volume. The second part of the first volume is how is it that um, the revolution happened in 1789 um, uh, and, and, and was it, and it happened in France and not in Germany. Mm-hmm. And Tocqueville, for the first volume, went to Germany to compare feudal regimes in France and Germany uh, in the Ancien Regime. And, and, and what, he's, what he explains is that, in effect, while in Germany the population, the peasantry, remain uh, submissive uh, under feudal rule all the way through the 18th century, the French peasantry had become landowners just much before, had been greatly emancipated from feudal rights long before the revolution. And, and, and the revolution happened precisely because the French situation had improved so dramatically. <laughs> um, and so he has this great theory of revolution, that revolution do not take place when people are most oppressed but revolutions take place when people have begun to feel, to get a feel for freedom. And they have the and, idea that they can get even more. And they can get even more, and therefore the oppression that remains becomes intolerable. 
And so when does he publish? I mean, how many volumes of the of the of this projected work does, so, does he manage to write? So he manages so so then he decides he has enough information on the 18th century to write more than just a brief introduction to his volume on and to write an independent volume and he does it. Mm -hmm. uh, and and uh uh, and, and that's published in 1858, mm -hmm. uh, uh, a year before he, pa he passes. Uh, but the, the, um, uh, but then he immediately begins to pick up his notes that he had collected long before on what then would become the second volume, A History of the Revolution, and the empire, that is, all the way to the 18th Brumaire and to Napoleon's school. And he mostly left notes on it, mm -hmm. never really got it done. Well, we said he had tuberculosis for some time. Uh, he had always been had a, a weak chest, as people said at the time, and, right. and, 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 these, and these problems. But the, the TB by 1853, 1854, it's become clear that he has tuberculosis. Well, he had two different episodes. Uh, he had an initial episode that was cured, mm -hmm. and then he had a relapse, um, and uh, and 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 as this during this relapse, um, well, he always had, of course, pulmonary disease, mm -hmm. but but the the greater episodes of it with. Um, uh, you know, spilling blood and being, you know, really sick, and, uh, and then you know took away his last year. And he he then moved to the French Riviera to the south to be in a warm climate. You know, remember this were the eighteen uh, fifties, uh, and uh, and had. Uh, uh, Decline that took several months until until he went. Uh, um, the end of his life was quite moving mm -hmm. uh, for a number of reasons. Um, one of them is that Tocqueville, who had lost his uh, childhood faith, uh, uh, but always attempted to recover it during his lifetime. Especially and, when he was talking to Unitarians, I, I noticed. <laughs> and, and, and in France, as a politician, his great goal was to reconcile the church and, and, and the state, mm -hmm. which of course had parted ways since the French Revolution. Yes. And um, uh, actually uh, confessed and took the last sacraments before dying. And that's what has been the debate as to whether it was under his wife's influence or mm -hmm. genuine. I, I don't have any reason to doubt that it was sincere because it was so consistent with his aspiration of his life. Mm -hmm. and, and another episode I want to mention is that just before dying, uh, he received a copy of uh, uh, John Stuart Mill's On Liberty, mm -hmm. uh, thanking him, John Stuart Mill thanking him for the influence he had on on him as he was writing on liberty, uh, as Mill was writing on liberty, uh, 
But but Tofield didn't have a chance to read it, but still had enough strikes to so he, flank it. He's only 54 when he dies? 1805, 1859? 53. 1853. He's 53. 53. He's 53. So young. So, yeah. He's 53. Uh, I mean, and in some ways, one... Given what's about to happen to America, but he could, you know, it's he. he well, the he, last years were pessimistic for him because because France was in the grip of a, of an authoritarian regime mm-hmm. with the return of the empire, and, and it was it was an authoritarian regime. Mm-hmm. It liberalized a, a little bit later the second half of the second empire, but initially it was brutally autocratic. Uh, so certainly not the democracy of no, his, no, no. It was of his really, dreams. <laughs> it was brutally autocratic. Yeah. And then, of course, uh, uh, the U.S., uh, the crisis of the political crisis of the 1850s was intensifying, and, and there was a real fear that the civil war, which he had predicted, mm-hmm. although not in the form in which it happened, he had predicted the race war was in the South, mm-hmm. but... Uh, 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 was was so was there was a real threat and Charles Sumner wrote to him yes this threat is real others try to be more optimistic but so Tocqueville had a, a somewhat pessimistic outlook when 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 he died thinking that you know his life had been for nothing yes uh, which of course is not the case. No. Hard to know where to end this, um, but let me ask you about how your actually the last book you published with Princeton was on a history of American philanthropy. Is that related to your interest in Tocqueville? How, how did you come to Tocqueville? Because you, I, I'm reliably informed, you've taught people 20th century U.S. history at UVA for for some time. Well, <laughs> <laughs> you wrote a book on Detroit. Yeah, and 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 uh, how. How did Tocqueville? How did that happen? Okay, well, it's pretty, it's pretty simple. <laughs> it goes back to my student years, where I had, I was fortunate to, to be François Furet's student, never officially his student, but he was my mentor nonetheless. He was a great historian of the French Revolution. I met him in 1968, 1968, I was writing my master's mm-hmm. in French history at the time. Mm-hmm. And he got me to read Tocqueville on the French Revolution and conversations with him. So I've read Tocqueville ever since my student years, seriously. And when I joined UVA uh, 10 years later, because I joined the faculty in 78, since I just retired, I was here for I taught for forty three years, and I had why, why begun, so short? <laughs> yeah, and, and and but I had begun working on my book on Detroit in in uh, in the in nineteen seventy three. Uh-huh. Actually, one of the reasons why I came to UVA in seventy eight because I was I had a job in France in seventies from seventy six to seventy eight. I left it because I needed to be on this side of the mm-hmm. uh, of the pond, like the British say, closer to the archives. Closer to the archives, even though it was not in Detroit, but it was closer. To the <laughs> I'd been at Michigan before when I started this mm-hmm. book on Detroit. I was interested in the history of cities, yeah. but when I when I came here, there was a sociologist in the sociology department, uh, 
by the field of capital, who was a well-known figure actually in social science, um, who had begun a Tocqueville society, at least had just created it. It hadn't really taken place really for sure, but just created it. The year I joined the faculty, and he immediately recruited me. Now, I couldn't have been able to join if it had been a scholarly society on Tocqueville, but the idea was a, a French-American society on the comparative study of social change. Mm -hmm. Tocqueville's name was just invoked uh -huh. because he was a big name in social science. Everyone would recognize him on both sides and of the Everyone would recognize him by yeah. both sides. Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, that seems like an interesting thing to do. And you know, I was a, uh, a young Frenchman lost in a southern school, <laughs> having no particular roots in here, and really wondering what really I was doing here, except that to be on this in this country to keep working on my book on Detroit, on industrial Detroit. <laughs> industrial. Uh, but I needed, you know, I took children I to make a living. I found a job, which of course in 1978 was practically impossible to find, so I found one, so mm -hmm. to be thankful for one. And, and a great job on top of that. And I was basically a self-taught US historian, so to me to teach at UVA, American history was a great opportunity when they hired me. And, I, I seized the opportunity, I resigned my job in Paris, I came. Uh, so I got, so so this, but I realized then, we had a journal called the Tocqueville Review, it's now in its 44th year. Uh, I'll give you a copy of it, of the latest issues uh, when you, before you leave today. And, um, and we, and, and then I, I realized that uh, this journal, which was a good journal, was a sociologist journal. There was no historian involved, so, and, uh, so I brought in uh, François Furet to, to sort of help us build the historical side of Tocqueville. Um, there was no real it was all about social science, but there was the, you know, George Pearson's erudition, the kind of Yale School of Social Studies, was no inside either. So I knew, I knew all of that. So I, I, I expanded, you know, the, 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 the scope of the journal quite a bit. And, uh, and then eventually, you know, after, uh, David Riesman, I mean, there was the president of the Tokyo Society, was first Ted Kaplow. Then David Riesman was a, a sociologist at Harvard. And then Dan Bell, <laughs> uh, you know, the head of ideology, mm -hmm. was also president. And then Dan Bell, Dan Bell asked me to succeed him as president. So I did. Uh, and once I was in that position, I... Um, um, organized meetings, and I was president of the Tocqueville Society in 2005, and that was the bicentennial of Tocqueville's birth, so I organized all the meetings, and, uh, international meetings to celebrate his work and to discuss it. We had special issues of the Tocqueville Review. Was, all of this was important work. So all these years, I kind of described myself as a Sunday Tocqueville. You know? <laughs> I mean, my real job was what I was doing in American history of the 20th century, 
uh, was my book on Detroit, and it was making a mark at Cockbread, yeah. and it was my book on the American Century, and then it was my book on philanthropy. I'll tell you why I got to that if you want me to. Well, I can see that. I'm starting to see the Kotofo connection to philanthropy, too. Right, right, right. But so it was kind of a sideline. So yeah. it was a yeah. Sunday television. But then, you know, uh, because of the role I played in the Tocqueville Society, I got invited to Tocqueville meetings, and I wrote essays. And then Goldhammer asked me to prove his translation of democracy in America. So then I began reading Tocqueville differently, mm-hmm. not just to for the pleasure of reading him or to understand what he was saying, but to see how you you know how you render him in a different language. Mm-hmm. It's a whole different exercise, you know. Yeah. And and. And then uh, at some point, more and more people say, Olivier, you've learned so much about this guy someday. You really ought to write a biography. Uh, and I resisted it for a long time. Well, you had, you had, in the notes that you've written for, what, three, four? Book of Goldhammer's translations amount to already a... Uh, it's very significant. <laughs> significant biography. Significant biography. Yeah. So, so at some point I said, okay, I took the plunge. And, and it, you know, it, it was in a sense, a way also to reconnect with my roots. Mm-hmm. So I had uh, somebody whose, whose work I admired, who had written with great brilliance on the United States, the country of, my country of adoption, so mm-hmm. to speak, since I stayed here. Even though I taught in France every year for a month or two, for 30 straight years. Mm-hmm. Um, so somebody who really I, I shared America with, so mm-hmm. to speak. And then somebody who had written with great brilliance about the country of my youth. Mm-hmm. So I felt this is a great project for me. I should do it. Friends were pushing me. And I felt I had said pretty much everything I wanted to say on the history of the 20th century. Um, and, and of course, I could take on another project, but mm-hmm. this seemed to be like a natural thing for me to do. I mean, here's a question I, I, I didn't tell you I was going to ask you, but I think you've probably been thinking about it. Um, those first three presidents of the Tocqueville uh, the Society and the uh, were sociologists, eminent sociologists. They obviously thought Tocqueville had a lot to teach even modern sociologists, right. and he does. What does Tocqueville have to teach modern historians? Uh, because what what have you? I mean, what have you as a historian? There's a lot of things we can learn from Tocqueville. I think we've t- talked about that the hard teaching of 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 of, of liberty and democracy. That's. But what ha- as a historian, what can we could we learn from Tocqueville about the craft of being a historian? Well. Um, I want to answer this on two levels. One, historians must read great thinkers. Okay, so it's the interpretation of history and society that great thinkers provide it shouldn't be the province only of professional intellectual historians. Mm-hmm. General historians should be aware of how various people at different points in time were thinking about society and politics and other topics. So, so I think 
I think uh, uh, and also I, I also think that in, so I'm not just talking about this but I also think that as as historians you know we need to read um, books that stimulate our intellect uh, uh, and frankly if you spend your life reading archives and student papers <laughs> it's pretty impoverishing okay? it can destroy your own intellect <laughs> it can destroy your intellect so uh, so I, I so there is a, a sense here of of intellectual regeneration mm -hmm. so that's one level but the second level is that certainly Tocqueville had a great quality a great uh, what's the word I'm looking for a, a knack for connecting uh, all kinds of material evidence to social behavior. Um, you could look at a landscape and tell you something significant about how people uh, uh, use the law. He, he had, a, he, he had a, an amazing ability to make connections among different kinds of evidence yeah. that I think historians can learn a lot from. Yes. Okay. And then the way he would, the Ancien Regime, and in my book I actually followed the sequence there mm -hmm. pretty carefully. He went where the evidence took him. It was a long road. It was a long road, but it was where the evidence took him. Yeah. And that is something historians need to do too. Yeah. So I think we have an immense amount of work of, of learning to do from him. Yeah. Yeah. My guest has been Olivier Zanz. He's the author of The Man Who Understood Democracy, The Life of Alexis de Tocqueville. Thank you so much for spending all these hours with me uh, and describing Alexis de Tocqueville. My pleasure. Just a brief reminder, if you're listening to Historically Thinking on the website, that's great. But for your convenience, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, GeoSavin, Podchaser, TuneIn, Deezer, and there are more. In fact, wherever there are podcasts, there you can find Historically Thinking. While great reviews are wonderful on whatever platform you want to write them, the best possible review that you can give us is to forward the podcast to a friend you think will find it interesting. You can also follow us on Twitter at hist underscore think or on Facebook.